Has it ever occurred to you just how incredible grapes are? Now think about it. That little box of raisins your mother packed in your lunch bag was the only fruit that qualified as a dessert. And consider this. When we hear juicy gossip, we say we heard it through the grapevine. We didn't hear it through the apple tree or the berry bush. Grapes are so darn special that the grocery store expects us to snitch a few to ensure quality control. Try doing that with a banana or a pineapple. Admit it, every encounter you've ever had with grapes has been positive. That's why we created Grape Encounters, a place for adults to hang out and focus on the paramount achievement of grapedom. Delicious, irresistible wine. Wine brings people together. It starts conversations. It makes us happy. In fact, wherever there are grapes, there's gorgeous scenery, very cool people, and plenty of laughter. All that being said, let's bring out your guide for this journey. The Wizard of Wine, the Gangster of Grape, David Wilson. It's time for your weekly Grape Encounter, and what a week I have had. Now, I do owe listeners a bit of an explanation, because based on my earlier representations, I should be in Italy right now, and I'm not quite there. I'm three or four days off, and I didn't get a chance last week to explain what happened, which is that I was getting ready to leave for Italy, and then the people that are sponsoring me there and who are getting me around around, about half of them had COVID. And it's like, okay, what am I going to do? Because I don't have a car and I probably just should wait it out a little bit. So we waited basically about 10 days and I'm back on track and I will be on a plane in a couple of days and that's all very exciting. But what is equally exciting is that Monday, and I was staying in a hotel. I've been staying in a hotel for at least a week now because I've given up my home. I don't have my office anymore. The studio's a wreck. It's a temporary studio. But while I was sitting at this wonderful hotel, I read an article that I thought was just so incredibly insightful, well-written, and explained what's going on with Merlot. Because you know that if you've been listening to the show for much of the last 15 years, I I talk a lot about Merlot. I think it's the most maligned grape on the planet. It doesn't deserve the awful treatment that it's gotten. I have a hunch that my guest today will probably say the same thing, and I'll just introduce her now that I got that sort of housekeeping stuff out of the way. On with me today is the author of that article. It's Sophia McDonald, and she is up in Oregon. And Sophia, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, David, and thank you for having me today. Well, you get around. In fact, I you write on so many different topics, and you write for some of the you know, top magazines in the world. Give me a rundown on where people can see your articles, read your articles, just to kind of show the scope of your work. Let's start there. The piece that you're talking about was published on 750 Daily, which is a wonderful website for anybody who's not familiar with it. Highly recommend checking it out. 
My work has also appeared on Vine Pair, uh, Wine Enthusiast Magazine's website. I do a lot of work for Oregon Wine Press, uh, and I've also written for a, a range of other publications uh, about food and wine, including Eating Well, Cheese Connoisseur, Sip Northwest, and the new Great Northwest Wine magazine that covers the Pacific Northwest. So how does that work being a freelance writer? Because, you know, that's a you're you're not getting a daily paycheck or weekly paycheck from somebody. You have to, you know, generate your own income. Do you submit story ideas or do you get assignments that you know, people ask you to write about a, a particular subject, same or low. It's a mix of both. Typically, when you're starting out at a new publication, you have to send them ideas and send them a little bit about your credentials. And then oftentimes, after you do that a couple of times, it may be that they add you to their list of regular contributors and they start to send you ideas, or it could yeah. just be that you continue to pitch them. Yeah. So what about the Merlot article? Because I, you know, this is such a hot button topic with me because ever since the movie Sideways came out and listen, you know, people blame it on Sideways. I'm not so sure that Sideways deserves the credit for causing the downfall of Merlot. It was already sliding. I do think it probably caused people to pay more attention to Pinot, but I think that the movie was better for Merlot in reality than it was for Pinot, even though Merlot prices went down, Merlot sales went down, but the quality of Merlot, now that's a different story. But right now, um, Sophia, there's you write about a shortage of Merlot. And this is the thing I really hadn't gone there in my conversations. For me, it was just Merlot versus Pinot. And it was a very pedestrian, you know, kind of conversation that I've been having for the last 15 years about it. But there's a real problem for people who are making Bordeaux blends because Merlot, Merlot is no moss in some places. Explain it. Well, first of all, just to be clear, the article that I wrote for 750 Daily on the Merlot shortage was specific to California. Okay, that's fair. So, yeah. so and I'm not certain what the situation is in other places. Um, but this was a story that I started to explore when I was visiting Sonoma last year, um, and specifically at Jordan Vineyard and Winery. Yeah. And they have been making Bordeaux-style blends that they label as a Cabernet Sauvignon, but it typically has a reasonable amount of Merlot in it. Um, and they were having some real challenges finding Merlot, um, being able to get Merlot at a price that they could afford. Um, and, and so it, it definitely was a struggle that they had brought up to me. And then as I started to talk to other winemakers around Sonoma and in Napa, I discovered that this was a problem for a lot of people, um, both people who wanted who wanted to make these Bordeaux style blends, but also even for people who were interested in single varietal yeah. Merlot. And and I think you're right that people sort of blame this problem on Sideways and the bad rap that Merlot got from that movie. But I certainly think that there's more to this shortage. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about when I was at Jordan and chatting with Maggie Cruz, who's the the winemaker yeah. there. 
um, the price that people can get for Merlot versus the price that they could get for Cabernet Sauvignon that's planted in Napa and Sonoma, um, the price of Merlot is just significantly lower. And um, for people who are growing grapes, you know, farming is a business and it's it's a challenging business. And so you at some point, farmers have to think about the bottom line. And if they can get a lot more money for cab, it just makes sense for them to grow more of that. But, but, um, but I think. Well, I was just going to ask, but why is this? Because you need that Merlot to make these Bordeaux blends, which much of the time are more expensive than a single varietal wine. So why would one ingredient that's essential to these blends, you know, be so cheap? You know, I I think some of it is just that demand for Merlot has been so low. And so again, because there hasn't been a lot of demand, people haven't been planting it. Um, Competition, because there's less Merlot available to people, competition has also gone up. And so it's just, it's getting harder for the people who need Merlot to find it because um, in in Sonoma specifically, um, what they're finding is that some of the winemakers from Napa are coming to Sonoma and buying Merlot there because it's more affordable than what they can get in Napa. Um, There's just, there's a whole range of things that have happened that have really um, driven down the price for that. So do you have a theory about where those Merlot drinkers went? You know, the consumption of Merlot has gone down and down and down. Did they migrate over? I don't think they migrated to Pinot. They might have migrated over to Syrah, maybe? Uh, Cabernet? Want to want to take a guess on this one? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible that maybe they've gone to some of those other big reds. I think certainly what we're seeing in today's marketplace is that younger consumers are wanting to sort of move away from the big reds, the higher alcohol styles. They want things that are a little bit different than what their parents drank. Um, They want grapes that they're not as familiar with because they want to try something different. They want something lower alcohol. And so it may be that some of those drinkers have just gone to something different altogether. Yeah, I I just wonder because what what's really interesting is you know I ran a wine bar for a good long time. In fact, just uh, sold it very recently, and I always found that when people came in and said that they didn't like Merlot, that I would first secretly pour them Merlot, and they would love it, and oftentimes they would even buy it. You know, they they were so misguided about Merlot. I just wonder if Merlot needs an advocate out there. That's what I wonder. But you know what? Let's hold that thought for one second because we got to take a quick break. I'm talking to Sophia McDonald, who is up in, you're in Portland, aren't you? Eugene. Oh, Eugene. Okay. I knew it was one of the cities where one of my brothers was born, Eugene in Portland. But anyway, um, and uh, Sophia writes uh, for an enormous number of different publications and websites and on a lot of different subjects. But I really like this article that uh, came out this week about Merlot. It was one of the best deep dives that you could possibly imagine. So we'll be back with more Grape Encounters and Sophia McDonald from Eugene, Oregon in just a second. All right. You're listening to Grape Encounters with David Wilson. We offer something for everyone. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to offer free wine. That's what your friends are for. Smoke from increasing wildfires is tainting wine grapes and vineyard executives are looking for new ways to adapt. 
PureFresh Wines O3 technology helps vineyards overcome the problems caused by wildfire smoke by treating grapes pre-crush to improve fermentation and overall wine quality, as well as removing smoke taint. For the typical winery, saving a full harvest of grapes with PureFresh wine costs only 10 cents per bottle. O3 technology has been approved by the FDA and USDA. It leaves no residue and uses no chemicals. It provides many benefits to wineries, including the removal of sulfur, pesticides, and fungicides pre-crush, the reduction of bad bacteria and mold issues, an improvement in roundness and fruit-forward palate notes, and so much more. Most importantly, it safely and naturally breaks down smoke taint molecules to save grapes from damage. Rescue your harvest from smoke taint. Visit purefreshwine.com today. Listen, I don't know what you are drinking right now, but I am definitely drinking more and more Merlot as the years go by because I have discovered, it's not my discovery, everybody that knows wine knows this, that this is the golden age of Merlot, for realsies. The Merlots right now are so terrific because the ones that weren't, that weren't so good were taken out and uh, the ones that could use a little, a little improvement, they got better. And the ones that were great are at least still great if not greater. That's how I feel about Merlot. You just can't go wrong with a, certainly a Napa Merlot or a Sonoma Merlot. And that's what we're talking about today with Sophia McDonald. And it, by the way, you're up in Oregon, Sophia. Uh, Merlot, what's the complexion of the wine industry where Merlot is concerned in your neck of the woods? You know, Oregon is so well known for Pinot Noir. You yeah. don't see a ton of Merlot here. Where you do see some of these Bordeaux grapes is in the Columbia River Gorge in the north and northeastern part of Oregon, as well in some in southern Oregon. Um, and I'll tell you, I have had some just fantastic Bordeaux-style wines or, or single varietal wines with Bordeaux grapes um, from areas around Roseburg, from the communities around Medford, uh, places a little bit outside of Hood River, um, as well as I will tell you, there is some just phenomenal Merlot coming out of Washington right now. So yeah, I would definitely encourage Merlot lovers to consider looking outside of California um, in addition to buying the great wines from there. Um, but definitely look other places when you're looking for Merlot because there are some wonderful choices in other places. What would you say the difference is between a Washington Merlot and a California Merlot? Um, I don't know that I have had enough Merlot from uh, from California to really say. Um, I will say that I find uh, have some found some really wonderful, very complex Merlots from Washington. In this article that we've been talking about, one of the people I talked to was Joshua Lowell from Sullivan Rutherford Estate in Napa. And one of the things that Joshua mentioned to me is that if Merlot is grown in a site that's not optimal and the farming practices aren't as as great as they can be in other places. Um, one of the things that happens is you get this little bit sort of prettier style of wine and that you don't get these really bold, serious Merlots that you, can, you get in really great locations with really great farming practices. 
And I, I appreciated that a lot. And I do find some of the Merlots that I've had from Washington have been that really just deep, bold, meaty style. Uh, the Merlots from North Star Winery in the Walla Walla area is the one that always comes to mind for me. That's just a very complex, beautiful wine. So that's definitely something that I've noticed about some of the bottles that I've had from Washington. I think that's such a good observation because the one thing that I would say about m my passion for Merlot is the more cab-like a Merlot is, the more I love it. You know, these big, dusty, beautiful, imposing wines, you know, to me, they're kind of like a Bentley in that they're massive and heavy, but they've got these beautiful, smooth edges that you just sit there and I drink them so much slower because I just want to savor every minute of it. But then uh, Merlot that is and oftentimes blended into a Bordeaux blend or heaven forbid something else, um, is a lot more, I don't even know how to describe it. To me, it's a little on the frivolous side. It's fun. It's just recreational Merlot. That's what it is. And I I can't have a serious conversation and drink that wine, but I can with the other. And it's really interesting how many people will taste a Merlot that is really, really well made and, you know, made by a really terrific winemaker. And they will love it easily as much as they love a cab. Easily as much. And maybe sometimes even more. There's a winemaker in the Napa Valley. His name is Mark Carter. And I've had him on the show a few times. And I think he's gotten, get this, like nine or ten hundred point scores from the Parker organization for mostly, I think, his cabs. But he makes this Merlot. And I make no bones about saying that it is the most delicious Merlot I've ever tasted in my life. And if all Merlot tasted like that bottle of wine, nobody would drink anything else. That's <laughs> I'm sorry, Sophia. I got on my pulpit, didn't I? <laughs> I just had to. I Because I get so inf infuriated by people who will say to me, oh, I don't like Merlot. And it's because you haven't tried the right Merlot. But that may be true about every varietal. Do you think? Yeah, I actually, one of the amazing things that's happening in Oregon right now is the Chardonnays that people are producing. Yes, yes, and yes. another grape that's been very maligned. People yes. say ABC, right? Anything but Chardonnay. But I think if people were to try these incredible mineral-driven, fruit-forward, not super heavily oaked Chardonnays that are coming out of Oregon, you would all of a sudden have all of these huge Chardonnay fans out there. And among people who in the past would have said, oh, I don't like Chardonnay. Chardonnay. I would never want to drink a Chardonnay. So several years ago on a trip up to Oregon, and I'm so glad you brought this up because I want to give a little love to Chardonnay right now. I'm one of those people who stopped drinking Chardonnay. I just, it was just, you know, too much butter, too much oak. It just wasn't doing the grape justice the way it was being made. But it was something that happened on a trip up to Oregon that really opened my eyes. And here's what it was. I was covering some wineries in the Willamette Valley. And I went to a place, a family operation called Lang. 
Are you familiar with those guys? You're shaking your head. Absolutely. Absolutely, right? They poured me the Chardonnay and my eyes rolled in the back of my head. I said, this can't be Chardonnay. It can't be. It's just too amazing. And that really got me paying attention to the Chardonnays in Oregon. And one of the things that I learned on that trip, which is now quite a while ago, I want to say it's like at least eight or nine years ago, there weren't a lot of people growing Chardonnay and making Chardonnay wines at that time. But that is changing really fast right now because where there's good Pinot, there should be good Chardonnay. That's just the rule. And they're discovering that they can get top dollar for that Chardonnay just like they can for the Pinot. So what's your take on it? You know, I actually wrote a whole interesting story about this for Vine Pear a couple of years ago. Apparently, when people first started to plant Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley, they believed they could grow Chardonnay because Pinot Noir and Chardonnay grow together so well in Burgundy. And that's why Pinot Noir does so well in the Willamette Valley is that the climate and the conditions are very similar. But what happened was that people just planted the wrong clone of Chardonnay. They were planting the clones that were appropriate for the climate in California, and they just didn't work well in Oregon. And so this mindset developed that you just couldn't grow Chardonnay in Oregon. And we thought for a long time that Pinot Gris was going to be the Oregon white. Um, Now, certainly you can get some wonderful Pinot Gris in Oregon still to this day. Yeah. Um, King Estate here in the Eugene area, uh, Montanor up in Forest Grove. Um, but once we finally got the right clones of Chardonnay in this state, they just went crazy. And yeah, you can get just unbelievable Chardonnays yeah, in I, Oregon. So I, I highly recommend people check that I, out. I tell you, you're so right. we got to take a break right now. But when we come back, I'm going to harp on this just a little bit more. And, and Chardonnay in general, by the way, because it's really worth talking talking about. You're on Grape Encounters Radio. We are talking to Sophia McDonald, who has some great insights into now a couple of varietals. We're talking about Merlot, we're talking about Chardonnay, and I do have a question for her about uh, other varietals. Well, I'm not going to give it away. We'll do that in just a second when we return with Grape Encounters. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure, those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMorganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. MMorganics.com, eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. Are you following Grape Encounters on social media yet? You're not? Well, you should be. It's the best way to hear the latest, juiciest, unfiltered wine stories. It's also the single best way to keep our unpretentious, decidedly different wine conversations going strong. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Grape Encounters. For tons of content on Facebook, 
you'll want to join our Grape Encounters radio group page. Or if LinkedIn is more your thing, connect with me by typing Grape Encounters Radio or Grape Encounters David in the search bar. Here's the deal. The more you click, the more I'll pour. And we're back with Grape Encounters Radio, but we are going to be back in Italy. That's the big news in just a matter of a couple of days. But we're hanging out in California, and the studio has just mostly been torn down. But we we decided not to tear it down until we could get Sophia McDonald on and talk about a couple of my favorite subjects, one being the resurrection of of Merlot. I say the resurrection because sooner or later, sooner or later, those of you who are out there poo-pooing Merlot are going to discover that you're making a big mistake because it's just a great varietal. Sometimes, uh, Sophia, I get hate letters when I do this, when I start, you know, talking about Merlot in such loving and lavish terms. But what's the story up there in Oregon where, you know, Pinot is the dominant red especially if you're near the Willamette Valley, are you allowed to like go into a restaurant and order a Merlot or will they throw you out like through the saloon doors out into the street? Well, I suppose it's a matter of whether you're going to the same restaurant where you're meeting Colin the chicken, who's going to be served to you for dinner that night. And they're so <laughs> hyper local that nobody wants anything except for Pinot. But no, you can find wines of all kinds in Oregon. I could just picture myself, you know, on that old historic street, McMinnville, you know, I, you know, I don't know if any of those places have saloon doors, but I could just picture somebody sitting in there ordering Merlot in sort of the epicenter of great Pinot. And then, you know, a couple of people g- gently throw them out through the saloon doors and they tumble into the street. No, that wouldn't happen because actually the people in McMinnville are super nice, by the way. The people in Oregon are super nice. I don't know. I have some theories about why that is. I'm not going to talk about that. Anyway, um, let's go back to something. Well, we're not really going back because you and I were talking about it during the break. But you said that there was a Chardonnay that rocked your world. Yes, it was Twill Cellars, which is in West Lynn, which is in the Portland area. Chris Dixon is the winemaker there. And he made a Chardonnay a couple of years ago that changed my life. It was just the most exquisite wine and taught me a lot about place and about how you experience wine. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful bottle. I I highly recommend visiting if you're in the Portland area. I think it's so important, and I said this a couple of weeks ago on the show, and I want to reiterate it here. You really, when I say you, I'm talking to everybody, and I'm also talking to myself, and I'm also talking to Sophia. You need to drink more wine. Now, I'm not talking about drink more in terms of gallons. I'm talking about more in terms of variety. The best way that I know to do that, other than to go to a lot of tasting rooms, which isn't practical for a lot of people, the best way to do it is you get a group of friends together and everybody brings a bottle of wine. And the best thing to do is put it in a brown paper bag or cover it with tin foil, but hide what it is. Everybody opens up their bottle one at a time. Everybody gets a little taste. That way you can taste a wide range of wines and, you know, not drink yourself silly. 
and you can taste wines that are your friends' faves that they've discovered. And it's a really effective way to drink a lot of wine. Because if you say you don't like Chardonnay, if you say you don't like Merlot, if you say you don't like Pinot, which I sometimes say as a joke, I do like some Pinot, but I actually only like about 20% of the Pinot out there. And I'm proud to say that. But if you drink a lot of wine, then, you know, in terms of variety, you'll discover that the depth and breadth of almost every variety is way beyond your wildest imagining. I, that's fair, Sophia, I think. Do you think? I think so. And Do you ever do that with friends? Just get together and do blind tastings? Not very often. It's definitely something that I would like to do more of. But I judge wine competitions. And I certainly have had that experience at wine competitions where you'll have a flight put down in front of you and you'll try the different wines, be they Merlots or Pinots or something else. And you'll think to yourself, boy, I know these all come from the same grape, but it's kind of hard yeah. to believe because the qualities of the, in them are so different. Yeah. And, you know, I get into this argument, which I'd love to hear your opinion on, since you're a judge, this argument about varietal correctness. Because sometimes I find that very off-putting that a judge in a wine competition will say, gosh, this is so delicious. I'm not going to give it a medal because it doesn't taste like other Cabernet Sauvignons or Syrahs. Because a lot of judges believe, I'm imagining most believe that there's a certain, uh, there's a certain style that a wine has to be to be sort of the consummate whatever, Merlot or Cabernet or Chardonnay or whatever. And if the winemaker hasn't hit that mark, then the wine is going to be disqualified. And I say fooey. If I have 50 chefs here and I hand them 50 raw chickens and I say, go away and bring me back a chicken dish, whatever you want, and I taste all 50 dishes and I love this one the most, well, I think that's a wonderful thing. Why does every wine have to taste exactly the same, right? How are you where varietal correctness is concerned, Sophia? You know, I have sort of mixed feelings about that. I think a good wine is a good wine to some yeah. extent. But if the goal of a wine competition is to provide information to the, con the consumer and the consumer, when they pick up a bottle of Merlot, expect certain qualities, if you give them something that's different, then that can be confusing and frustrating to them. And, and I know that I have that experience in my own life. Um, I love to cook and I love to pair wines and food. And sometimes I'll make a dish and I'll think, you know, what would be perfect with this dish is a Malbec. And then you go and you pick up a Malbec and you're expecting certain qualities and then it's not what you expected and it doesn't pair with the meal as well as you expected. And I certainly don't like to have that experience and I expect that it's also a frustrating experience for others. So that was a good example, Malbec that is, because that is a varietal that can taste really super different depending upon who makes it. But I would just say to your, your point that I, I, if I make a special dish, why would I take a chance on a wine that I haven't tasted before? At least if I know the producer and I know what the producer is typically capable of, then I'm okay with that. If there's a good description that's not silly on the wine bottle, then I might be good with that. And I might uh, send a hate letter if that description was off the mark, because that makes me furious when there's a description that it just, no, it's not what you said it is. But I just, I love when I taste something that's really exciting and different. And if you think about it, 
if you look at every single bottle that's made of wine, there's a description associated with it by the winemaker, by reviewers, whatever. And they're, you know, one tastes like cassis and leather and the other one tastes like black cherry and road tar. I don't know. And you get all of these different descriptions that should be sufficient, I, I, I would think, to decide whether or not you want to taste the wine. But the idea is that every wine is described differently. So why can't the wines be different? Oh, man, I don't know, Sophia. I'm on such a pedestal today. It's your show. You're allowed. <laughs> well, I know. I know sometimes, though, I, get, I, I, I do get frustrated. And one of the things that I tell people about Grape Encounters is, you know what? We're not really a tasting note show. I don't want to be that. I mean, I can describe generally the styles of wines that I like, and I can describe the way a wine feels, because that's what makes me feel, uh, that's what makes me understand the wine. If you say that a wine tastes like a puppy sitting up in a little red wagon, I guarantee you, you know what that means. I mean, not that you can taste a puppy in a little red wagon, but it's just that feeling that you get. And, you know, and if you say that a wine is as intense as, you know, pick a, a major drama that you saw at the movies, you know what that wine's going to taste like. It's going to be different than the puppy dog wine. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's what it's all about. Do you ever pair, Sophia, wines with movies and things like that? Because, in other words, an intense wine with an intense movie. How far do you go? Uh, I don't do that so much. It's it's interesting you say that though, because as I was thinking about today's show and what I wanted to talk about, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about was what is it that makes a good bottle of wine? Um, and maybe what makes a good bottle of wine is that it tastes like cherries and lavender and whatever else. I mean, I mean, maybe it is those tasting notes that give you some guidance on what the wine is going to taste like. Um, but as you mentioned, all wine tastes different to different people. We filter it through our own palates, through yeah. our own experience. And I find you know, one of the things that makes a wine great to me is um, when it really evokes a feeling or some kind of a place. Um, I had a Pinot Noir from Authentique Wine Cellars, which is a really small producer here in Oregon. Nicholas Keeler is the winemaker there. And he and I had a bottle on his property when I was out doing some tasting last year. And the first sip of wine tasted like the state of Oregon to me. And this is my home. I okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. The, the, this is going to be a longer answer than uh, I have time for at this very second. Oh, sorry. Because no, no, I want to know what Oregon tastes like. So we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> Uh, from our conversation with Sophia McDonald because when we come back she's going to tell us what the state of Oregon tastes like and I can't wait for that when we return with Grape Encounters Welcome to Total Wine and More, a wonderland for wine spirits and beer lovers. No matter what's on your holiday table, we have the wine and the savings to match. Pop open some bubbly as guests gather around. Pair baked ham with Cabernet for some tasty magic. Turkey and stuffing plays nicely with Pinot Noir. And while you're at it, check out the top 20 wines of the year and discover standout gifts for everyone on your list. 
with over 8,000 wines, 4,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers to choose from. You can expect the unexpected, always at ridiculously low prices, with the best service in America. Choose in-store pickup or curbside pickup, shipping and delivery. Explore more in-store, online at TotalWine.com or on the app. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina, delivery available in select markets. And we're back with Grape Encounters Radio talking to Sophia McDonald. She's up in Eugene, Oregon, and she's a big fan of Oregon. In fact, she has found wines that taste like Oregon. That was a funny comment that you made, but I totally understand it, Sophia. So first, tell us what Oregon tastes like. And then I know you got a bunch of stuff that we haven't gotten to as far as Merlot is concerned because we've gone off on tangents, which I, I hope people have warned you that if you come on this show, you're going on a side trip. Anyway, what's Oregon taste like? To me, Oregon tastes like all the things that I love about this state. It t- tastes like fresh berries. It tastes like the mountains. It tastes like the pine trees and the lavender bushes and the ocean. Just all of these natural things knit together in a really cohesive way to make a a great bottle of wine. And I think that is the magical thing about wine, or, or at least one of the magical things about wine, is that it can really take us to a place or remind us of people or an experience that we've had. That is the whole point of it. And, you know, we talk about wine being the great time machine. And it really is true. What I think is also beautiful is how you can drink a bottle of wine, have a wonderful experience simultaneously, drink a similar wine five years later, and it conjures up the memory, that happy memory that you had. It's really, it's an amazing thing. But we only have a few minutes left. So I want to talk a little bit more about Merlot. First question, do you love Merlot, Sophia? Give us your general thoughts about this wine, because of all the wines out there, it's probably the most maligned wine, and it's not fair. So give me your thoughts. I I agree with that 100%. I would not say that I love Merlot, but I would say that I like Merlot, and that my appreciation for Merlot is increasing every year. David, when we were preparing for this interview, you asked me what I thought was an interesting question, and that's, why do so many people think that they don't like Merlot? And what is it going to take to get people to this point where they discover that they actually do like Merlot? Right. And I was thinking about, you know, I think one of the big things, whether it's sideways or whether it's something else, I think our in our culture in the United States, we have just been sort of conditioned to say that we don't like Merlot. And because of that, people just aren't willing to give it a chance. Um, and once we get these ideas on our head, it's hard to get them out. It's yeah. hard to change that habit of saying, oh, I don't like Merlot. I'm going to drink Cab instead. And I think you sort of alluded to this earlier when you said that nobody's really out there being a champion for Merlot and that there are definitely people being champions for other grapes. You've got um, California really pushing Cabernet. You have the Willamette Valley really pushing Pinot. Southern Oregon really focused in on Tempranillo. And I think people just need to realize that Merlot is a great wine and that they should try it. Um, And even if they've had a bad Merlot and, you know, certainly there's some bad Merlot out there, just like there's some bad Cab and there's some bad Pinot out there. Um, But people just need to give it a chance, Um, even if it means taking a risk when they're ordering in a restaurant. I think we talk sometimes about people who don't know a lot about wine sometimes feel sort of self-conscious about 
I don't want to say something wrong or I don't want to order the wrong thing and look like I'm stupid. Um, and I think because we've been conditioned by our culture to say, oh, I don't like Merlot, people I think sometimes are afraid to say, I'd like to try a, more, a Merlot because they're, people are going to look down on them for saying that. Well, on, so the, I, on the flip side, though, if I can jump in, people are also conditioned to say, I love Pinot because they're afraid. They are afraid to say they don't like Pinot. It's almost like a political thing that if you don't say it, you're going to get hate mail or something and you're not. But you don't have to love Pinot. You don't have to love anything. You, you know what? If you love Moscato for Pinot, sake drink it enjoy it love it be happy with your moscato and i don't even know do they make white zinfandel anymore because i guess they do but that was all the rage and you know what if you love it that's great i have a dear friend he's one of the most accomplished winemakers on the planet and he goes to his sushi bar and orders white zin so it's you know what drink what you love and don't let anybody tell you you can't all right uh, Sophia, any further thoughts on Merlot that you want to share? Because there's so much to say about this wine, but it occurred to me when you were talking that maybe the reason there's no real Merlot advocate is that there's not enough Merlot to advocate for. Well, I hope that that's not the case. And I think, you know, some of these producers that I talked to in California, some of them are planting Merlot. Some of them are really being champions for the grape with farmers, um, doing things like signing long-term contracts with them or agreeing to purchase certain amounts from them so that people will blend it. So I think you're going to see Merlot uh, make a comeback. And I certainly hope that it does. The last thing I would say, so two other things I would say, first of all, if you think you don't like Merlot, get a good recommendation and try some good ones. And if you love Bordeaux blends or Meritage or whatever you want to call it, you probably love Merlot because Merlot is so important to those blends. And so you can't just say that you don't like Merlot. By the way, I, I know a lot of people aren't really following what wines are in what families, but the same family that has Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot also has Malbec and Petit Verdot. And those are all five really good wines. And they and they have similarities, that's for sure. And Sophia, you mentioned Malbec a, a bit ago, and I'll tell you, I'm really starting to think to myself, gosh, I got to drink more Malbec because I've been finding, especially the the Malbecs from South America. They they just are so incredibly good and they're such a good bargain. And I say this, spend too much on a Malbec. That's what you want to do. Because too much on a Malbec is 30 bucks, okay? If you spend 30 bucks on a Malbec, it's going to take you to the moon because it's like a quarter of the price of what an equally satisfying Bordeaux from California would be. Do you, how do you feel about Malbec? Because I think you might, I think you might like it. I am definitely coming around to it. And I'm doing that because there's some incredible Malbec in Southern Oregon. Um, Spangler Vineyards, Hillcrest Vineyards huh. are two, um, I've had their Malbecs recently and just absolutely loved them. Yeah. I'll tell you something. Southern Oregon is the place to watch. In, in in the United States, I think this is a region that may be exploding and doing more exciting things than almost any place else. They are just going wild there. And I'm so glad to be associated with the Oregon wine experience down there because that's a it's a great con competition and it's in that Southern Oregon area. So they bring together a lot of winemakers from the region. And I just, I love the wines down there. Sophia, we got to go. We got to go. We got to make room for the next show. Thanks for being on. I really appreciate you being on. I wish I could have been up there in Oregon with you, but you know, I've been going on and on about packing my things and leaving. Did you have fun? 
I did have fun. And David, when you get back from Italy and want to come to Oregon, you're welcome to come by any time and we'll go tasting together. I would love that. I would love that. I've, I've never met an Oregon wine I didn't like. That's honestly the truth. Sophia, been great to find you. If anybody wants to read more of Sophia's work, you just have to Google Sophia McDonald. She's written some great articles, so check them out, okay? That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. When I talk to you next, guess what? It's going to be with an Italian accent. Thank you.